Internet fans, and welcome to Love Hate Relationship, an opinionated podcast for opinionated people. I'm Andy Bowell. And I'm Alex Ruiz, and as ever, we are here to brighten your days, anger your souls, and we're not telling you how to live your lives this episode. That'll be next episode. That was last episode. I really got to rejigger this entire intro. Andy, how are you today? I'm doing peachy, Alex. <laughs> Uh, no, and I do agree. We're still we're still in the uh, this is episode one hundred and three, so we're still new in the back to back format we've been doing recently. But what hasn't changed is that we like to spend a few minutes just talking about whatever old thing enters our pretty little head. Weed out some of the douchebags who might be listening. You're, if you're listening, I doubt you're a douchebag because you've kept listening. And Alex, we could talk about how Tucker Carlson's been fired from Fox News, kind of a update from our last douchebag buffer. We could talk about um, any myriad of things going on in the comic book world, but you and I got on a tangent last night. (laughs) (laughs) And this might end up becoming a future topic for you, you stated. Almost certainly. But we um, we watched a movie... Last night, you and I. We watched Terrifier 2, one of the goriest films I've ever seen. Yeah. And here's the thing. Like, Andy talked about the terror, the Terrifier series when he talked about slashers. That's right. Uh, some time ago. And we, we sat down and watched the first one a number of months ago. And then we watched the second one last night. And here's the thing. Terrifier 2 is really good. I think. Terrifier 2 is really well done with some crucial scripting problems, in my opinion. Well, and and the first one was the most, the best new slasher that I have seen in a very long time. Yeah. And it was original. It was, I, I, I said this to you last night. I, I said, um, I've seen every slasher. Not literally every slasher, but effectively every slasher. Yeah. I've seen... You know, all the Halloweens minus um, a couple of the newest ones. I've seen, I think, all of the um, Friday the 13th, except for that, like, 2009 reboot one. Sure. Um, I've seen every Nightmare on Elm Street, I've se- including the reboots. I've seen pretty much every Chucky movie except for the Mark Hamill-voiced remake and the TV series. Sure. Um, it's, it's, I've seen all the slashers. You're a student of this genre. And I could not predict Terrifier 1. There were kills in there, not just the one, if you've seen it, not just that kill, um, but also, like, just, just some really original, unpredictable stuff. Yeah. And I, and I loved it. And I watched the second one, and I just kind of went, okay, I've got time for this. They're introducing some stuff. Um, I've got time for it, but it is clearly, this was my take on it. It was clearly setting up a franchise. Right. Which led us into just a conversation about horror franchises and the state of modern horror and then like kind of tracking rising and falling in horror. You're right. We're, we're most certainly, this might be my next love just as a little preview, but we talked for like a solid hour after we watched this movie about horror as a medium and, and that usually is the mark of something good yeah there's something there there's something there yeah i don't want to take too much away from a future conversation but it is interesting the very recent era of horror that we've entered into yeah. because you have like of of movies we've watched recently 
Um, I obviously I didn't watch Hereditary with you. I watched that separately. That's a movie that fucked you up very deeply. Deeply. Um, we watched. Dude, we watched X together. We watched X. We, we watched, watched Pearl. We watched Pearl separately. I really want to watch Maxine when it comes out. Yeah. Uh, these are all very recent horror movies. Uh, you and I got into a debate as to whether or not Midsummer qualifies as a horror movie. I don't really think so. You definitely do. I think it does because I think cult, not lower C cult, but like capital C, like the organization cult horror is a kind of horror. Yeah. As we're speaking, uh, Evil Dead Rise or Evil Dead Rises? Evil Dead Rise. Evil Dead Rise um, ju just had its theatrical release, I think, a couple of weeks ago. And I saw the last Evil Dead. I don't even want to say. Is, is it a reboot? Is it a, just a continuation? I think it's just titled Evil Dead. That one was really unclear. It was kind of a pseudo reboot, but could function as evil dead four if it wanted to yeah it's like a soft reboot yeah which is funny because that makes it what the third or fourth soft reboot of evil dead indeed um so you know there is that and, and i i really want to watch evil dead rises by all accounts it is excellent we're in a really interesting period of horror because i remember when the draw of horror was that it was schlocky and bad Sure. And I remember when horror was just straight up, like, not very exciting because it was always a reboot of something else or just like a a very unoriginal, gritty, like, kind of we're figuring it out mess. So, I, I mean, yeah, the basis of what I want to talk about in a future episode is we are in a horror boom and tracking what the horror boom is. But in our talk last night... I, I do want to share this. You you came up with a pretty brilliant parallel. <laughs> we were looking at three people who I think most most film people would agree are like the three big horror directors of the moment. And we've just, literally in this conversation we've discussed their movies. Yeah, we've got Ari Aster, creator of Hereditary and Midsummer. Yeah. Ty West, who did X and Pearl. And, and soon to be Maxine. And soon to be Maxine. And then Damien Leone, who has done Terrifier 1 and 2. Yeah. And the comparison that I made was... Because we were talking about kind of the history, like these things in context of history. And the the statement that I made was that Ari Aster feels like John Carpenter. Mm -hmm. uh, in that he... He... John Carpenter never made a sequel to Halloween. John Carpenter, um, I think he co-wrote on Halloween 2. Uh, he didn't even direct it. And he did the music for the new uh, through the new Halloween trilogy. Other than that, he stepped away from it. He was very much about, like, let me just do this one thing and kind of move on. John Carpenter, it sounds pretentious, but John Carpenter was about the art. Yeah. And that feels like Ari Aster, who hasn't done a single sequel. Yeah, absolutely. And and all of these films are are very well done to one degree or another, but I think Ari Aster is definitely the one who is like trying to make a horror film win an Oscar more yeah. than any other director right now. Yeah. Damien Leone feels like 80s Wes Craven. Like the, your Nightmare on Elm Street era Wes Craven. Your Hills Have Eyes Wes Craven. Your Wes Craven who's going to like disturb you. Yeah. And will make you think some and will grip you some with interesting characters or some plot lines. But at the end of the day, he wants to give you a horror experience that touches you physically. 
Sure. Um, and then <laughs> this was this was the key point. Um, Ty West feels like '90s West Craven. In, and I'm talking Scream era Wes Craven, a Wes Craven who is going to give you all the permutations that you have of a familiar horror trope, but he's going to make you think and feel shit about these characters. It's much more character driven. It's much more character centric. And it's um, it just fucking hits on deep thoughts about sex and about. Um, the horror of human bodies going through really, really rough shit. Yeah. And it's psychological and it's like deeply demented and tied into real dark places that ordinary humans might go to. So really what we're saying is we need to do a love on Wes Craven because we've talked about John Carpenter. Yes. Yes, we have. <laughs> I, I would not be mad about this. Well, I love me some Wes Craven. There you go. Our slow transition into this being a horror movie podcast. Uh, I like music shit way too much for that to happen. That's but. fair. And speaking of music shit, moving into our actual topics for the episode. And, and if you're a new listener, every episode, one of us talks about something we love. The other talks about something we hate. We used to do relationship questions. Now that's every other episode. And Alex... You want to finally talk about some core music shit that you love. That's right. So, uh, I always like starting with a question, and my question going into this, dear boy, is somewhat vague. I want you to point me, here and now in this conversation, uh, and later in the drop that I'm going to force you to put down sure. for the people to listen to, uh, the song or riff or solo that immediately jumps to mind for you as the quintessential tone of an electric guitar. I have one. If you need it, I can do it first. But I want your knee jerk. What's the first riff or solo or line that you hear with electric guitar? Hmm. See, you're the music buff, so I like. I know this in my head. I don't think I remember the song, but just the. What the fuck was that, Andy? <laughs> <laughs> um shit now see i don't know the song okay i'm probably gonna cut this and come up with a different answer now you're leaving in that riff or at least putting it at the end of the episode fair enough <laughs> see in just my own personal experience i'm trying to think of like the first stuff i ever heard which like the first rock album i was ever like given and consciously listened to was detroit rock city i mean Kiss. i mean I mean that riff is iconic. Yeah. I don't like Kiss, but I can I can say that. Do you want me to play me mine? Yeah, go for it. All right. That is the riff uh, for Stone Temple Pilots' Interstate Love Song, which is one of the best Stone Temple Pilots songs. A lot of people don't think about Stone Temple Pilots as their first thought of a band, but for whatever reason, that riff has lived in my head rent-free since I heard it at like 10 years old. Fascinating. Okay. It, it, it is it is one of my favorite it's a it like when I'm warming up on a guitar, I will play that riff. Like huh. it is it's not super complicated. It, it's 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 fun. It's it's not like, you know, like a punky power chord type of thing, though I do love that sound. Yeah. It's not like super noodly. 
a lot of people might say the opening riff to Sweet Child of Mine. There's just something about that riff, the groove of it, the sound of it, the distortion, the tone of it has always just, when I think like electric guitar, I always immediately go, What's fascinating for me is the fact that that is heavily in the grunge era. A solid like, I don't know what, 40 years into the history of electric guitar music? Yes. So Technically longer, but 40 years into it being in rock and roll context. Yeah, okay. So that's very fascinating to me. You want to go with Detroit Rock City? I mean, honestly, in that spirit, I think Nirvana Smells Like Teen Spirits opener okay. is probably up there. It definitely encapsulates the sound. It's funny because that riff was stolen from Boston, yeah. lovingly stolen from the band Boston in a different song. Mockingly stolen. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that, there's there's Johnny B. Good, anybody who's seen Back to the Future. I mean, I, I am not mad at that answer. I am yeah. just surprised that it wasn't something from it is, the Rolling Stones. No, or, it's, it's funny because when I was thinking about this question, I was like, what is my quintessential guitar? T-? And at first I was like, what's the Zeppelin riff or what's the Sabbath yeah. riff? Yeah. Um, and, and the thing is, like, I love Zeppelin and I love, I, I, I sincerely considered doing the intro to Zeppelin since I've been loving you. Mm-hmm. But the thing is, I think about that and I'm like, it's, it's good. It's not the first thing I think of. What is sure. the first thing? It is Interstate Love Song. Mm-hmm. And I think that kind of speaks, both of our answers kind of speak to the fact that, like, this is, this is like the first horror movie that actually scared you. This is a, this is probably a a question that you could get a hundred different answers should you ask a hundred different people. And I love that. And there's people who are going to say, like, a Jimi Hendrix riff or... Um, God, I, one I was thinking of, I just re, I told, I texted you this. I was re-listening to David Bowie's Diamond Dogs. Yeah. And my yeah. favorite Bowie song is Rebel Rebel. Sure. Well, my second favorite, technically my favorite is uh, Tonight Tonight, with, which is his duet with Tina Turner. Sure. My favorite pure Bowie song is Rebel Rebel. And that guitar riff also lives in my head rent-free. Yeah. So, yeah, no, I love that. Um, I appreciate you trying to trying to work with me on this very vague opening question. Well, and it would help if I could remember the song I'm actually thinking of to engage that discussion, but I try. It's all good. We can move on. So in my quest to find interesting things to talk about on this podcast, I've often avoided things that might sound too quote unquote obvious. Mm-hmm. I talk about artists and genres and tech and people and even sports that often go ignored or unannounced, or I try to at least. Um, To that end, forever ago, I talked about my arguable main musical instrument, the one that I do actually play more than anything else, the one that I actually play in a band, which is the bass guitar. Listen, re-listen to that episode. It's one that I I, I think about pretty often. I love that episode. Sure. Um, But I deliberately forsook talking about my actual main instrument, which is the electric guitar. This was not a mistake, but for the sake of content and for embracing the obvious for it, uh, I'm talking about that today. Mm -hmm. And I think we even talked about in that episode about how, like, it was funny that you were talking. I think we've talked about electric guitar, you know, minorly here and there. But when we talked about the bass, talked about how, like, you play bass Mm -hmm. in a band 
but normally I'll see you pulling out an electric guitar and, and riffing on that. Yeah. And that's, and that's like, I, it's always funny because it's interesting when you meet people who play both because all of us kind of have this thing where if you're a bassist, you probably only own, if, if you're a bassist slash guitarist, you probably only own like three, maybe four basses. Mm -hmm. I own four basses. You can argue my ukulele bass is a, is a bass as well. So maybe five basses, but I own like double that in guitars. You are maybe the wrong person to talk about owning instruments. You know what? That's fair. <laughs> but but it's a thing. Like you'll you'll find people who own four basses and twenty five electric guitars. Sure. It just yeah. it's just a, it's a weird thing. Um, so I, I was like given a little bit of basic background. So. Obviously, the classical acoustic guitar is an instrument which has existed for centuries. Dates back to roughly 12th century Spain, with predecessors that can be traced back to Greek and Moorish instruments 400 years before that. Um, the history is actually kind of um, anthropologically interesting because it's vague and people, a lot of people don't know exactly where it descends from. Sure. But, uh, but I'm not going to dig into that. The earliest versions of the electric guitar came about in the early 1930s. So if you think back to the 1930s, big band orchestras of the time were getting louder and louder. Uh, this was the swing era. Of yeah, course. absolutely. Um, and it was harder for guitarists in those bands to actually be heard over horn sections, over string sections, over big old fucking drums. Which makes sense if you think about just the sound an acoustic guitar can make, even if you're putting a microphone right up to it, which they probably weren't. And and here's the thing, even if they were, you're gonna get bleed from whoever else you're around. That's a good point. While while yeah. while that's coming in. Yeah, right. So guitar manufacturers started experimenting with magnetic transducers that could be placed into the guitar and run into a speaker. What's that what's that chuckle you just made? We recently all watched the Rocky Horror Picture Show, a very beloved movie, and just that is a word I cannot hear. The transducer will seduce ya. Yeah, exactly. That that's just what I'm, I'm having a shit eating grin about. <laughs> that's that's fair enough. In electrical engineering, a transducer is an actual fucking thing. Yeah. Um, so the first electric guitars put these transducers, or pickups as they're generally known, okay. into hollow body acoustic guitars. You've seen my acoustic guitar, very similar to that. Uh, and they became a huge hit with jazz and blues players who figured out that they could also make playing solos in smaller ensembles a viable option. Mm. You think back to like, way early days of the blues players like Lead Belly. Lead Belly played a 12-string acoustic guitar, mm. and it was him and a fucking microphone. Okay. Think back to old clips you see of Elvis playing an acoustic guitar with, like, two microphones, one in front of the guitar and one in front of his mouth. Sure, yeah. That was what they were playing before. And a lot of these blues players, especially in Chicago, Chicago became, like, the mecca for electric blues. Mm -hmm. Um, they figured out, okay, if I've got this electric guitar, I could hit the back of the club and and be heard. And, the, and it sounds better than when I'm just trying to play an acoustic guitar with a microphone in front of it. Yeah. Jazz players really loved it because suddenly guitar could be a lead instrument. Like before your lead instruments in jazz were horns. You know, Miles Davis yeah. was a trumpet player. Sure. John Coltrane was a sax player. Um, 
with the advent of these new guitars, you could get people like Charlie Christian and Wes Montgomery who were electric guitar jazz players. And it could become a lead instrument. Yeah. So this worked great, uh, though it was noticed that if the amps were too overdriven, if you turned them up too high, these hollow guitars would start feeding back horribly. Okay, okay. So I can see where we're going here. So you need to get rid of the hollowness of the guitar. You you do see where I'm going. So some prototype and custom designed versions of a solid body guitar, which uh, affectionately, uh, affectionately sometimes gets referred to as uh, a cutting board with a pickup in it. <laughs> um, with no hollowing, they were made or commissioned by people like Les Paul and Merle Travis back in the 40s. Mm. Les Paul actually like made his own out of basically a log that he attached a neck to and and put a pickup in. Like Les Paul was weird and experimented with shit like that. I mean, sure. Yeah. Um, and in the early 1950s, an engineer named Leo Fender designed his Esquire guitar, which was the first commercially available solid body. And so for people who are not like electric guitar inclined or maybe particularly musically inclined, you're dropping some names that have become like the industry standard for electric guitar manufacturers. Les Paul, Fender. Yes. Like these are, this is the Coke and Pepsi of, of guitars. L literally. Yeah. Like my, my, my jazz bass that's sitting over there in view of Andy has Fender stamped on the headstock. Sure. To this day. Yeah. Um... And Leo Fender, um, Leo Fender's Esquire guitar was hugely popular, um, and and it was literally him taking the pickup out of a lap steel guitar and putting it into effectively a slab of wood with a neck on it that he just carved into something that could vaguely be played. Uh, I, I I'm going to post. I'm going to show Andy a series of pictures of some various guitars, and I'm going to put links to them in here. Um, but if you want to see what these things look like, just click some of those links. So as electric guitars became uh, available commercially, they became foundational to blues-based music. Mm. As weird as it might sound, there was a time when blues was more of a piano-based music. It was more drum-oriented. It was more harmonica-based you might have guitars in a blues band, but it was not crazy to see a blues ensemble that would be a piano, a stand-up bass, and a harmonica player, no guitar in sight. But as you started finding these commercially available electric guitars, which again, could get very loud, mm -hmm. could reach the back of a club, and you could play both rhythm and solo parts with them, they became foundational to that music. Early blues and R&B performers loved them because the harmonically rich sound and loudness could replace whole orchestras. And let's be clear, when you run an electric guitar sound through an amplifier, that is harmonically very, very rich. You get, you have, your tonal spectrum there is very similar. I, I'm getting into EQ nerdery here, but electric guitars hit in roughly the same uh, registers as the human voice. They get about as low as, you know, a non-bass singer will sing. They can they can go as high as a soprano singer will sing. Yeah. And that range 
There's something about that range biologically that attracts us as humans. If you, any piano players who are listening to this, you'll be very aware. Your melodic lines are right there in that range of the piano that the human voice is generally in. You're not generally playing melodies way at the top for very long or way at the bottom. It gets muddy there and, and it doesn't hook in the same way. So just coincidentally, electric guitars happened to harmonically hit this one particular range and it became foundational for this music. It became foundational to rock music thanks to Chuck Berry. You mentioned Johnny Be Good earlier. Right, absolutely. And it's funny to me because you go, everyone here's seen Back to the Future, Johnny Be Good, and I'm like, I, I know Johnny Be Good from Chuck Berry, but okay. Well, right, because that's the, I, I say that because that's like the whole joke is that Michael J. It's Fox. your cousin, Marvin. Marvin Berry. <laughs> You know that hip new sound you've been looking for? Well, listen to this. Exactly. And I just assume more people remember that bit from Back to the Future, which is a Chex Notes 50-year-old movie, 40-year-old movie. You know, that's that's a good point. <laughs> Topical reference. Um, so thanks to – so with rock and early rock and roll, I mean, Little Richard was a piano player. Sure. Chuck Berry was a guitar player, and yeah. Chuck Berry's influence on rock and roll is what brought you electric guitar to it. And all the people who went on to rip off Chuck Berry, the Beach Boys, the Rolling Stones, yeah. the Beatles, everyone who foundationally evolved rock and roll came at it from the Chuck Berry lens. Which is funny, because wouldn't a lot of people used to say that Little Richard was like the original king of rock and roll? Yes. Yeah. Little Richard, there's an argument that Little Richard was the inventor of rock and roll. It's it's tricky. You can also kind of say Ike Turner might have been the inventor. You can make an argument for Chuck Berry being it. Yeah. Uh, some people say Sister Rosetta Tharp, another guitar player, was the inventor of rock and roll. And it's very funny, because if you ask Sister Rosetta Tharp about it, she just goes, man, that ain't nothing but... Sped up rhythm and blues. I've been doing that since the 40s, <laughs> which is great. Sure. Um, but every rock genre is closely tied to electric guitar. And from the mid-50s to about 10, 15 years ago, it was the key instrument in yeah. contemporary music. Yeah, absolutely. And it, I feel like the subgenres of rock are defined by the sound of the electric guitar as much as anything else. Yeah. You mentioned the Beach Boys, which got me thinking about surf rock, which got me thinking, oh, I should have said Miserloo as my answer. But oh, like, yeah. Surf rock is just like a little bit more of a wavy sound. Punk rock is a little bit louder and angrier of a sound. Heavy metal is just a crunchy sound. <laughs> I love that you're using, I, I, I love some of the adjectives you're using because they're not that far off from how actual guitarists describe their own guitar tones. Sure. Like you will hear guitarists like comparing pedals or comparing tones of certain instruments, certain kind of pedals. And they'll be like, this one is tinnier. And this one is, uh, this one, I definitely heard crunchier. There's literally a setting on some modeling amps that's called crunchy. Yeah. And it's that like really mid focused distortion sound. Precisely. You got to come up with words to describe the thing. And I, I'm not surprised I'm, I'm pulling the overlap. Oh, sure. So at this point, I want to show you some photos of some of these early electrics going all the way to contemporary times. Okay. You can spend as little or as much time um, talking about them as you want, 
but um, they're in front of you on the email, yeah. and, and I'm going to put links in the description to all of these photos as well. Sure. So the first one here is the frying pan lap steel guitar. This was the first stringed instrument to have one of those electric pickups put in. And notably, it is a lap steel. It is not actually a guitar you stand with. Mm, okay. I mean, it looks like a banjo. Looks like a banjo made out of metal. <laughs> I don't hate that. Uh, I don't hate that take. It's tuned like a guitar. It works like a guitar, but it is a lap steel. Sure. Not really sure why lap steel was the first one. I, I don't know. For whatever reason, they just that was the first one. That was 1931. Sure. So 1935, four years later, you get the K. Roberts Electro Spanish. And this is starting to look very much to what you expect. It it is a guitar. It's got the artistic little s carvings into the wood which i know you've told me before that those actually serve a purpose but they're called f holes yes uh, you all, no you also see them on you see them on violins and cellos sure. and a lot of other yeah. stringed instruments the picture you're sending it, it looks notably aged but like if you look past that you can see the bones of a guitar but then everything in the middle around where you would actually strum, that looks completely different than what you would expect. Yeah, so that has a pickup cover on it, um, the, the, which is a piece of metal that would get put over the pickups. The idea behind that was it would hopefully reduce electromagnetic interference. Okay. Um, I know you've never done a tremendous amount of sound design, but you've been around it a little bit. Um, when you're dealing with stuff like electromagnetic transducers, Things like, say, harsh lighting over top can add to the feedback. Mm. Now, a lot of guitar players, a lot of guitars would come with those covers, and they, a lot of guitar players would actually take it off just so they'd have an easier time picking. But that was put there by the engineers to try and reduce some of that feedback issue because, again, you're dealing with hollowed-out guitars, and the vibrations from those hollowed guitars, when you have a really loud, overdriven amp, there'd be so much feedback. Okay, okay. Okay. So the next one uh, on here is a Gibson ES-150 Charlie Christian model from 1936. Uh, guitarists affectionately refer to guitars like these as jazz boxes. And this is basically an acoustic guitar. It has the F-holes and everything, but it's basically an acoustic guitar with that pickup right there towards the neck. Right, yeah, I see that. And, and again, yeah, it looks looks even more like what I'd expect a guitar to look like. I see some knobs to you know raise volume on the bottom. Um, but again, just staring at the middle of it, something is like that just doesn't look like an electric guitar looks like. Okay. So the next one, this one should be familiar to you. This is a Gibson ES-335 semi-hollow guitar. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And yeah, this, so now, 30 years later, we have what like is like the design of an electric guitar. Sure. You know, you can change the body around. You can change what the fretboard at the top looks like. But like, this is clearly an electric guitar. It's got a bunch of knobs. The area where you actually strum looks like what I'd expect it to look like. Sure. And this probably looks familiar to you because I own the Epiphone version of this. It's my main guitar. Yep. 
Um, this also, I mean, you've seen a hundred people. Eric Clapton played this guitar. Alex Lifeson from Rush played this guitar. Sure, sure. This is, this was, and, and the thing, uh, so I haven't talked about semi-hollow designs. Semi-hollows were actually a step between hollow body and, sem and, and solid body guitars. Um, the deal with a semi-hollow is this guitar is not fully hollow. There is a plank of wood basically right down the middle where the pickups are mounted, and then the two um, hollowed sections are actually glued to the edges. So it doesn't have, it still feed, can feed back a little bit when really overdriven. I'm talking like your crunchiest, like sludge metal kind of tones, <laughs> but this thing can take a lot more overdrive. Mm -hmm. But it also still has, that hollowed construction still makes it, sound really good in clean tones yeah. and, and you can play I, I i love a semi hollow like this because i can play jazz or i can play like i could play that stone temple pilots riff with that much distortion on this guitar i could play black sabbath on this guitar probably couldn't play cannibal corpse on this guitar but i can play a, a fairly wide range of things with this guitar so next over here uh, is an image of both an Esquire and a Telecaster. These are the Fender models, and these are fully semi-hollow guitars. Okay. These were the first commercially available semi or solid body guitars. I apologize. And yeah, the just the visual distinction to keep that that going is we're we're moving away from the F holes. Mm -hmm. This is very clearly not as wide of a like body as the guitars we've been seeing, which makes sense because they're fully non-hollow. That's correct. And again, this is a guitar you've seen a hundred people play. Yeah. Springsteen plays this, Tom Petty plays this, Prince plays this, um, Tom York from Radiohead plays a version of this. Um, these are incredibly common to this day. And the design is almost unchanged since 1951. Like the Great White Shark. I mean, yeah. Maybe the neck will be a little bit thinner. You might have different tuners on tuning pegs on the neck. Um, you know, the pickups might be a little overwound or a little underwound in terms of how many magnetic coils are on them. There will be small little adjustments or changes, but the but by and large, this design has been almost identical since 1951. Okay. Uh, next up. Another one that you've seen a hundred times, this is a Fender Stratocaster. Introduced in 1954, maybe the most copied and popular electric guitar in history. Yeah. When I had a guitar, which was given to me with a copy of the game Rockstar, which was <laughs> supposed to be rock band, but with an actual guitar. It was supposed to be Guitar Hero, but it actually teaches you how to play guitar. It came with a knockoff Stratocaster. Yeah. I actually, uh, you, you, you gave me that guitar. I did, because yeah. I played it, like, for three months along with the game and then picked it up and, like, taught myself how to badly, slowly play one song on it. And then I was like, this just isn't me. Yeah. And, and, it, and you know, it's funny. On a personal note, I've never liked Stratocasters that much. Like, there's something about them. And maybe it's because I love um, so much heavy music. Mm -hmm. These are, you know, the single coil pickups on these can sometimes struggle with really heavy distortion. 
Um, and to be clear, you can play pretty much anything on any guitar, and anyone who tells you otherwise doesn't know what the fuck they're talking about. Mm. Um, you can, it might not be ideal, but you can play roughly anything on any guitar. I never liked Stratocasters that much. Something about the sound of them never appealed to me. They are very playable. They are very easy to play. They're, they're very light. Um, they're very well balanced. You can do a lot of things with them. I don't know why this is the most popular guitar. Like, more people have a fucking Squire Stratocaster, which is the, like, knockoff, not knockoff, but, like, budget brand um, subsidiary of Fender. More people start on Squire Strats to the point that it's almost a cliche. Well, I think as an answer to that, you're probably not starting at death metal. Maybe you want to. Maybe that's the thing that inspires you to get into music. And then you go to some 50-year-old guitar teacher and he's like, okay, we're going to start with like the Beatles. And this is this sounds like a guitar that is more suited for that older, maybe a little softer maybe. sound. Yeah. My, my guitar player in my band, which is a like R&B cover band, we, you know, we play... We play a lot of different things, but we play we play a lot of Motown. We play a lot of Stax record stuff. We play, uh, we we also play a little like we play the band and we play Wings, but we also play Hall and Oates. Yeah. But we also play Stevie Wonder, like a lot of that kind of thing. My guitar player plays a Fender Strat. Sure. That is his go-to. He actually told me that the next guitar we're going to talk about was what he was originally using, and it never felt right oh, for that music. Okay. Then he got a Fender Strat, and it felt right. Okay. Uh, before we move on to there, the one thing I will say is I, I mentioned I never gravitate very much towards strats. And yet the last time I went guitar shopping, because I, um, I had a bunch of pedals that I was trading in and I had so I had Guitar Center money. Um, the last time I did that, I bought a five string bass and I bought a Squire Stratocaster hmm. because it was $70. It was very inexpensive and it played so well. I, I bonded with this guitar in such a way. And it's the guitar I keep at my job. Uh, like that okay. guitar lives under my desk and it's my practice guitar at work. Yeah. It's a very cheap Stratocaster, but it plays so well. <laughs> so even me, who I don't consider myself a Strat guy, I was like, I, I have to have this Stratocaster. <laughs> Again, speaking to the maybe the reason why it's so popular is because it just is a, a really good guitar to play. Absolutely. Uh, I've got two more for you. Okay. Uh, the next one is a, uh, technically three. The next one is a photo of 2019 versions of a Les Paul, a Gibson Les Paul standard and a Gibson SG standard. Um, tell me what you think seeing these two guitars. Well, so it, it might just be a function of um, the images you chose, but the thing me the guitar layman sees is okay this is the first one that doesn't have the tobacco finish this yeah. is the first the, the there are two guitars here and they are noticeably visually different both in body and color the necks and, and heads are the same but like so this is what my brain goes okay this is when we really just started customizing the hell out of the body because we knew how to make the body so it didn't matter that it has to look the exact same way anymore so we can start cutting them in different shapes and painting them with different ways and it's not going to actually affect 
the sound because we know what we're doing. Sure. And, and you know, that that is a little bit of a bias on the ones that I, the sure. photos I showed. Sure. Um, all these guitars that I've shown, minus maybe the very earliest ones, they all come in things other than tobacco bursts. The 335 comes in red and blue and all of that. Mm. Um, you know, Telecasters can come in all manner of colors. Strats. Like, the thing about strats was that they were based off of, like, old Cadillac color catalogs. Mm. So you could get them in red and blue and yellow and orange and, sure. and any number of things. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. And and you know what? Case in point, these two guitars can come in that tobacco burst, that classic burst. Yeah. Um, you might notice, the, you, you might remember the SG as being the Angus Young guitar, very famously. Yeah. Angus Young of ACDC was very associated with the Gibson SG. Um, I love a Les Paul. It might be my favorite electric guitar. I don't actually own a Gibson or Epiphone one. I have uh, an ESP one that is very clearly a ripoff. And I own a Harley Benton guitar that is also a ripoff of uh, Les Paul Jr. I love a Les Paul shape. I, that is the kind of guitar that I do gravitate to. Yeah. At least the electric guitar that I gravitate to. It can handle, handle sludge metal. But it can also like clean up to the point where you can play like heavier jazz or lighter blues. Like I, I, I don't know. That's that's my sweet spot. Yeah. Personally speaking, um, the the SG was also the Tony Iommi guitar, and Tony Iommi might be the one guitar player who influenced my playing more than anyone else because I love Black Sabbath so much. Makes sense. So the last one I wanted to show you, um, those last two um, came out in '52 and '61, respectively. Yeah. I wanted to show you what I think is maybe one of the only really good looking new model of the guitars that I think, which is the St. Vincent guitar, originally released in 2016. You think that's good looking, huh? I like this guitar. It's uh, apparently I'm, I'm sometimes in the minority about this. It looks a lot better than some of the bullshit that I've seen come out. <laughs> Listeners, this thing looks like somebody took a guitar out of the Jetsons and made it real. This... This is a very weird body, rounded corners. Oh God, it's got a it's got an asymmetric um, top where on one side of the fretboard it ends sooner than the other side. I I like this color, Alex. I fucking hate what I'm looking at, but I'm not the guitar guy. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I'm gonna show you a different um, real quick. I, I'm gonna just send this to you. Um, this is the Billy Corgan signature guitar, which is another recent one that came out. Mm. This is what I think is a hideous contemporary guitar. Okay. Absolutely <laughs> ugly as shit. Okay. <laughs> so I just emailed that to you. Oh, joy. In real time, listeners. Okay, so I'm looking at this guitar here, and I mean, it's not, it's not great. I, I do think it's a little bit better. It's it's butt bothers me. It's, it's butt. <laughs> it's butt bothers The, the you. butt of the guitar, the bottom of the, the, the guitar is very like, it's it's a weird egg shape, but like kind of at a diagonal. I I, I understand. This is also ugly. I mean, do you, do you want me to be perfectly honest, Alex? We did not need to, in terms of the style and the body. We did not need to move past, like, what we achieved by 1985. Like, by that point, you had the Flying V, you had the Angus Young-looking guitar, you had a, 
you had the 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 Charlie Christian looking guitar or the semi hollow like the one on your on your step. There there's symmetry is pleasing is I guess what I'm really saying here. Fascinating. So it's interesting because I fucking hate flying bees. They're one of the most uncomfortable guitars to play sitting down. Oh sure. And I I, I think they're hideous. Um, although you've never seen a reverse flying V, which are even worse. True. <laughs> But no, I get it. And, and you know what? Here's the thing. There are a lot of blues lawyer dad type players who agree <laughs> with you. Literally, we have a term for them called blues lawyers. They're people who like play bar gigs but decide they need $10,000 rigs Okay. Uh, in order to play their like shitty little bar gigs. It's always fascinating to me. But there, yeah, there, there's a, there is an opinion that like we haven't had a good new guitar design since... Pick your date, 1961, when the SG yeah. came out. There's people who think the SG is too ostentatious, and they're like, we should have never moved past a Les Paul and a Telecaster. Like, well, no, I, I'm willing to agree with that. And and the thing is, like, there are so many, like, I could shoot you, I, I had to pare this list down. Um, I was going to show you a bunch of, like, 80s metal guitars that are clearly offshoots of a Stratocaster, but made to look, like, modern and sleek. Yeah, sure. And, and I, and I could have shown you a Flying G. I could have shown you um, the Carina or the Explorer or any of these other guitars that I'm sure you've seen in music videos and just over the years. Yeah. Um, one of your favorite guitar players and singers, Claudio Sanchez, play often plays a Gibson Explorer. Mm. Uh, which is really uh, like it, it was a really unpopular model when it came out, and it only became really popular in later years. But it's a cool ass guitar. I would I would love to have a Gibson Explorer. I think they're dope as shit. Um, He's also the man who I, I think is most commonly associated now with a double necked Fender situation. Uh, uh, that's a that's a double neck SG. Yeah, I hate those guitars because they weigh like as much as the world. Sure, absolutely. and are just shitty. Um, but sure, if it works for you, it works for Claudio and it works for Jimmy Page and it works for fucking nobody else. <laughs> so, um, I've, I've, I've put you through enough of this, um, moving with, into our home street. With, with the point where we would normally switch topics, tell me why you like the electric guitar. Uh, well, I don't really agree with those who call the electric guitar the quote unquote greatest instrument in the world. I, a piano is arguably much better. Um just because you can replicate a whole fucking orchestra with it. Uh -huh. um, I do think the guitar allows for certain things that not many other instruments do. The ability to bend strings while you're playing alone adds a level of emotion that you can't get out of something like a piano. Sure, yeah, absolutely. That makes sense because it's a new level of manipulation on the sound. Yeah, so I think about something like the way David Gilmore bends a string is fucking heartbreaking yeah. in the right context. Sure. Um, the ability to edit tones through the use of different parts, pickups, amplifiers, and pedals means, again, that the same instrument can play soft jazz, shoegaze, and sludge metal. Mm -hmm. You can do all three of those things with a Les Paul. Yeah. And, and that differentiation of context, that versatility, you don't see that in violin or saxophone. Not that there's anything wrong with any of those instruments, but it's such a unique thing to this particular one. Yeah. I have a soft spot for things that are easy to learn and difficult to master. You can tell by my love of things like chess. Just yes, like- You do love chess. Yes. And just like I can teach someone the rules of chess in 10 minutes, I can teach a person to play a song on the electric guitar from absolutely nothing in about the same 10 minutes. 
It'll be an easy song, something with power chords, very simple strumming pattern, but that alone will cover so much music. I can teach someone to play Blitzkrieg Bop by the Ramones in 10 minutes because that is three chords, it is one shape, and you just move that one shape along some fucking dots. Mm -hmm. I can do the same thing with Green Day's Brain Stew. Which, you know, could have been my answer at the top of this because I think that's the first guitar riff I ever heard where I was like, oh, I want to pay attention to the sound. Yeah. And the, and the thing is, those are two incredibly easy songs. Yeah. Not, not complicated in the slightest. I can teach someone to play those very, very quickly. And they're both electric guitar sounds. Yeah. And they're satisfying. That said, just like you can study chess for decades to improve even just a little bit, you can read books on theory, you can study, um, you, you can study players who historically have absolutely elevated the game and been beyond what anyone could have possibly imagined. Mm -hmm. There's literally computer systems that you can use to analyze and get better with. No. You can study playing guitar for a lifetime and always have more to learn. Finally, electric guitar is absolutely the most fun instrument that I've ever played. Back during the early days of the pandemic, I had multiple people ask me for help on getting started playing, playing guitar. And, I, and, I, and during the pandemic, I put an offer out to people. I might have even mentioned it on the podcast. I was like, listen, now is the time when we're in lockdown. If any of you, for your own benefit, if you want to pick up any kind of musical instrument, I will help you find one. Mm -hmm. You tell me your budget and what instrument, I will help you find a used one or a very inexpensive budget one. You tell me your budget. I will help, help you find lessons, whether you want an actual like teacher that you can pay for or if you just want free resources on YouTube. I offered this to people. I was like, I will help you find things. And this was my little way of just reaching out to my community and being like, I have a very particular set of skills. Yeah. Put that drop in. <laughs> <laughs> I have a very particular set of skills and that is. I do have are a very particular set of skills. Skills I have acquired over a very long career. Skills that make me a nightmare for people like you. Helping people, and that is finding budget conscious ways to learn and study and do music. And I gotta tell you, I always, whenever someone was like, I wanna start learning how to play guitar, um, I always started by asking them if they wanted to learn electric or acoustic. Uh, sidebar, the pandemic may have actually saved the electric guitar from obscurity. Guitar sale, we had more guitar sales at the in the first year of the pandemic than we had in like the previous 20 years combined. Wow, okay. And you're seeing the reverberations of right now because in popular music, electric guitar is more common than it has been in the last like 15 years. I can recall previous conversations where we talked about how that really had been phased out of pop. And, and it is coming back. And I think a lot of that is because people bought guitars because they were bored out of their fucking minds. Um, anyway. Almost all the people I talked to said that they wanted to start on an acoustic and eventually move to electric. You told me at the beginning of this, a, a person probably isn't going to start off by playing heavy metal. Yeah. I disagree with that. I tried my best to always talk them out of starting on an acoustic. Acoustic guitar is great, but it's always best to play the one you're more excited by. Play, That's yeah, fair. Play the one you're more... And people would be like, oh, I, I have neighbors. I don't want to be too loud. Shut the fuck up. There are headphones. <laughs> you can just get headphones and plug them into your amplifier. That's how I played for years. Yeah. It's, it's, it's exciting. Acoustic guitar is great. I love acoustic guitar. I have an acoustic guitar. I, I, I play it almost as much as I play my semi-hollow. 
electric guitar. There's something about plugging in an electric guitar, putting in a little distortion or, or the right amount of overdrive, and then hitting a riff or hitting a power chord or just hitting something like that, mm-hmm. playing something with that intensity of that sound. It's so much fun. Yeah. It is so enjoyable. And I love this instrument so much. I'm glad it's having a comeback. I don't think it'll ever be the main instrument of popular music again. But I'm glad to see it not falling wholly into obscurity. I'm glad that so many people bought them. And yes, maybe a lot of them ended up in closets the way fucking sourdough mixers mixes did. But for if even just 10% of the people who started playing guitar during the pandemic continue with it, that is an incredible resurgence that I think will have generational reverberations as we move on into the next century of guitar playing. That's really exciting. I mean, it, it truly is. And, you know, we've, I've made no bones about how, like, I probably like rock more than any other of the core genres. So sure. I'm happy to see it bleed back into pop and, and other avenues and continue to be like, a viable option so it doesn't go the way of the steel guitar and or, be only played in 80s 50s european nightclubs or the saxophone yeah. i don't want i love saxophone I, I still want to learn to play saxophone someday but i i don't want the electric guitar to become the saxophone where it's just a retro sound that you only see thrown in with retro bands and yeah. and in and and when you want a retro vibe sure. like the technology of it keeps evolving and there's exciting new places to go into now. You can now have MIDI guitars that function a lot like MIDI keyboards and will play and will play samples. That's fucking dope as shit. Yeah. So I, I'm excited about the future of this instrument. You let me ramble on long enough. I think it's exciting. If any of you are interested in getting started with guitar, let me know. I'm happy to be a shepherd to direct you towards resources and, and what you can buy and what not to buy and all of that. So my offer still stands, even though we're not in lockdown anymore. So another thing to hit us up on email and Twitter about. (laughs) Yeah. But in the meantime, uh, I'm going to take a moment here to talk about my topic for the week, which is my hate. And this is currently a very topical hate. It is my sincere hope that by the time you're actually listening to this, listeners, it is not so topical. But I want to take a moment to go into the history of the numerous Writers Guild of America strikes that we have had in this country over the past 60 or so years. I'm here for it. We uh, just entered a new one, uh, or we're about to. Precisely. And I'm excited here. Uh, WGA writer strikes have been a a recurring topic of conversation for me and you because they've been so significant to the media we love. So please, go in. So... The Writers Guild of America is like a organization that very clearly, I think, states it is for the writers of movies and television who work in America specifically to have a like representation and a union and be able to band together and and have rights. Um, The Labor Guild was formed in 1950 to give writers a voice and and help them not be so marginalized and and forgotten when it came to um, movies and television actually being successful. Okay. And since then, we have had five, we are entering the fifth, 
Writers Guild strikes that have caused significant massive delays in the entertainment landscape. For a little bit of context, the contract in which the WGA like operates is renegotiated every three years to kind of update the rights and, and make it so that we aren't still living by jurisdictions that were made back in the 50s. And that might be part of why this is so prevalent, but I'm going to briefly talk about each of these strikes, and I think there's going to be a pretty significant recurring issue. Mm -hmm. So the first one I want to talk about is the 1960 Writers Guild of America strike, um, which has gone on to be the second longest strike in, in American history for this particular organization. Okay. Six years after the Writers Guild of America is founded, and it was like the key issue was about the fact that writers were not being paid. They were not being given residuals for any movie that came up on like rerun. So anything after a primary theatrical release, writers were not seeing any of the money. And also low budget half hour shows and anything that was an hour long program, it just wasn't in the contract up until that point for there to be any residuals for the writers, probably because in 1954, nobody thought we were going to have hour long television content. Well, yeah. And, you have to remember, at 54, we're still, you know, this is pre-cable. Yeah, absolutely. And so this is a period of time. It's, it's understandable that no one would think to put that in the contract because syndication isn't really a thing the way that it becomes yeah. in later years. Um, if you talk to people who were around in those times, they'll they'll... <laughs> they'll bitch and moan about how like oh if we wanted to we, we didn't get reruns like like y'all like y'all have we didn't have streaming if you didn't see the episode of I Love Lucy or the Flintstones if you didn't see it then you weren't gonna see it again maybe you'd catch a rerun at three in the afternoon when you were at work or at school but that was a maybe like it, and and again only three channels blah 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 right. And so we, we know at least by 1960, reruns were a thing mm. because writers were not actually getting any money from them. That yeah. was like the core gain from the 1960 writer strike was to actually start seeing residuals on reruns and different lengths of, of content than we were used to. Sure. So that brings us to the 1981 writer strikes. We met. We 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 lasted 23, 21 years. Mm -hmm. We lasted three more of these contract extensions. We get to the 1981 writer strike, which again, like, becomes a thing. It, this one didn't last nearly as long as the 1960 writer strike, but the core um, issue of this strike was the fact that writers were not seeing residuals from stuff like. Video, video disc and cassette markets. They weren't seeing this new technology that was invented and, and distributed and sold and writers were not seeing any of the money for it because up until that point, no one had thought that this would be a method of distribution and so nobody thought to make sure that the writers got a part of it. There's also, it is also worth stating here, when you're talking about things like the video market, the movie industry and the TV industry were very, like, people forget this. They sued Betamax and VCR because they were sitting here going, like, if people can record 
fucking stuff off of the TV, yeah. it is going to kill our business models. Nobody will go to movies anymore. Nobody will continue to watch reruns anymore. It's going to destroy our, nobody will watch live sports because they can just record it. That's the big one. I, I remember still seeing it as a kid. You know, anytime you put on a baseball game, the first like 30 seconds were the big warning blue screen that said any illegal recording distribution of this event is punishable by law. And that was like a thing people were actually worried about. Yeah. And and so they tried to kill this industry. And when they couldn't, they were still trying to profit from it as best they could. Right. Absolutely. Which included not paying people. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Especially not paying the writers because there was nothing that said they had to physically pay the writers. Um, So then cut to the 1988 Writers Guild Strike of America. This is seven years later. This is two contract negotiations later. By the way, the average, uh, I I did the math real quick. The average is just under every 14 years. There's a fucking writer's strike. Which I will say is better than the National Hockey League. Jesus Christ. Also had multiple strikes in a shorter amount of time. (laughs) Um, but so this this is like the big one. This is 153 days of a strike. It's the longest strike in the history of the WGA. Um, it is like it's only not in recent memory because this is almost 40 years ago. Mm-hmm. But the formal like negotiations and the issues at the table were about residuals for hour long shows. Again, going back to the issue from the 60s because. Before, it was just, you don't get rights at all if it's an hour-long program. And then they were like, okay, fine, we'll give you rights when it comes out. But now by 1988, we are starting to see, like, I think HBO is taking its first fledgling baby steps. And, like, hour-long content is becoming something that you can make a rerun for. I've referenced the Who Shot JR episode of Dallas multiple times. Right, absolutely. Dallas was the biggest show in the country, and that was an hour-long drama that drew in a ridiculous percentage of the TV-watching audience. Without, like, looking it up in real time and figuring out the timeline, it's entirely possible that Dallas being so big and the writers realizing, oh, we cost our, we, we lost a shit ton of money because it wasn't in our contract to get rerun residuals yeah. might have in, in influenced this strike. Um, this is also the one, the first one I hear about, where the writers were actually looking for expanded creative rights wanting to be consulted in stuff like casting and choice of director for projects, which that one's significant just because, like, you think about who actually crafts a story, who actually creates a piece, it's the writer. And it is pretty crazy that, like, 50 years after we start making filmed content and... 30-something years after the Guild is invented, we finally start going, hey, this is like our intellectual property. We'd like to have some say in how it is presented to the public. Yeah. And writers have always been an easy, like, shift them along part of this. Because movies have always been looked at as a director's medium. Right. I think TV has largely been looked at, or for a time, TV was largely looked at as an actor and producer medium, weirdly enough. Yeah. Um, I feel like in more recent years, you'll get things like, like, you know, we think about a lot of TV shows and their creator credits, you know, 
Uh, we talked about making Michael Shore a love for this podcast multiple times. Michael Shore being a writer primarily, but he's he's the creator of so many of these wonderful TV shows. Yeah, absolutely. Um, the biggest effects of this strike was that like sports media really dominated the schedule because it was the easy thing that like we don't actually need a writer in order to put on our Summer Olympics coverage content sign of things to come yeah right exactly <laughs> um it really hurt late night television as well as as well as like the sitcoms of the time the cosby show johnny carson the mission impossible tv show that nobody remembers it was a tv show you know this this my parents hit. remember my parents loved mission impossible <laughs> when they were young they told me about it this hit the market significantly in that way um, and actually, weirdly, led to a boom in animated content, specifically in the holiday season. Like, I think this was the year that we got, like, the Garfield Christmas special yeah. and, and that kind of thing. Yeah, and animation, right? Uh, this is this is an important caveat. Writers for animation are not part of the WGA. Yeah. They're not allowed to be. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, topical to your interests... We almost lost Halloween 4 due to this strike specifically. Uh, the writer of that film, Alan McElroy, had 11 days with which to write the script for the film mm -hmm. before he had to boycott and, and not write as part of the WGA. Mm -hmm. um, also, not, not the best Halloween movie. Not the best Halloween movie. Also, also topical to my other podcast, which I did not know this until I was reading this. The 1988 film Earth Girls Are Easy, mm -hmm. which I, I watched for cult fiction with the incomparable Stephanie Johnson, and it's like a really crazy, wild ride, was filmed during the strike. And so the writer of that film had to not be on set in order to, like, you know, stand strong, which actually explains a few things. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Goldblum. Go on. Anyway, um... Just just a couple other uh, hits here. Uh, the Child's Play, the original Chucky movie. You mm -hmm. mentioned you've seen every Chucky at the beginning of this episode. Uh, Don Mancini, who was the writer of that film, he also had to like forsake being on set. Um, License to Kill, one of the Timothy Dalton, James Bond films, as well as narrowly Tim Burton's Batman and Beetlejuice. Like, almost. We almost didn't have the Tim Burton Batman because of this strike. Arguably the best Batman. Certainly in the running. Yeah. Now you want to get nuts? Come on. Let's get nuts. They come to an agreement as they do every time because here, here's the thing. I, I, I've got two more to talk about, but you'll notice a pattern of every single one of these strikes. It becomes... Well, we want rights for this new thing that wasn't, like, a popular format up until now. Producers and studios go, hey, no. And the writers go, hey, fuck you. What if we stop writing? And then inevitably, like, they win because we need written content yeah. for media. Um, fast forward 20 years to the 0708 Writers Guild Strike of America. And this is the one that, like, you and I were alive yeah. for. Yeah, and this is when I thought of, like, we, we lived through this, and we 
we can actually very personally speak to the repercussions of it. Yeah, absolutely. The 2008 strike, the main issues on the table were larger funding for writers, a larger cut of profits in general, um, but also wanting to um, get greater DVD residuals. Before it was video cassette residuals. Now DVD is the technology. DVD is the format for which content is being produced. Writers are not seeing DVD residuals. It is the exact same thing that happened in 1981, only swap out the media. Yep. Um, as well as having jurisdiction over animation and reality television in, in a writing capacity, which was quote-unquote new media mm. in 2007. Sure. Um, and, and like yeah, like we said, this is the big one. This is the one that like... Weirdly enough, a Viacom South Park contract, like Viacom made a deal with the writers of South Park, that actually kind of kickstarted this off because the writers of South Park wanted to be treated fairly and Viacom was like, you make a fucking cartoon. What are you talking about here? And helped inspire this strike. But this is the one that like has an entire list of shows that people have heard of that like killed what this, uh, you know, uh, shows that people have heard of that were canceled because of this strike. And I want to be clear about something. Andy mentioned reality TV a moment ago. And I remember in the early 2000s, this giant influx of people going, what the fuck is everything being reality TV now? Yeah. Why does this suck? Oh, Americans must be stupid because we keep watching this garbage reality TV show. Sure. Reality TV shows don't need writers. Like, scripted things need writers. Yeah. Effectively, the like, yes, there are writers employed on reality TV, but those writers, by and large, are also functioning as production assistants, actual directors, and editors. Yeah, absolutely. We have reality TV because the industry wouldn't fucking pay writers. Which they had 50 years to, like... Prevent this from happening the way that it did. You want to talk about some of these TV shows? I, I do. I mean, you know, just to talk about the effects, this one's interesting because late night television, they immediately went to reruns on like day one of the strike, mm -hmm. They which, which makes sense because it's the content that you need a writer to come up with something every single night of the week for. Yeah. Um, and it is the topical thing. I mentioned how they were affected in the last strike. And this one, just the second, they were like, well, writing's on the wall. We're going to reruns, reruns for three months. We lost a season of Saturday Night Live. Um, and we lost a ton of shows, some of which were like deeply beloved and wonderful. Um, the main hits, the, the main ones that like were actually um, heartbreakingly taken away from us, in my opinion... Um, we had Heroes, which was a groundbreaking TV show and was really helping the public like fall in love with superhero media before the MCU ever came around. Yep. And season two was greatly affected by the writer's strike. Season two is regarded as the worst season of the show, and it, it petered along for like another couple of years, but everybody pretty clearly can see that like, okay, well... Season two is where this loses me and it never really picks me up again. Yeah. 
Um, shows that had shortened seasons were stuff like 30 Rock, The Big Bang Theory, Family Guy, Every Flavor of CSI, <laughs> Desperate Housewives, Grey's Anatomy, uh, um, Pushing Daisies, a show that I dearly love, um, was greatly impacted and was canceled because of the writer's strike because it was too, like, crazy of a concept and not being able to have the writer on screen to help, like, lead it along really helped, really hurt the property. 2000, mid-2000s television is really, really weird because, like, you look at the shows that actually were canceled because they couldn't be written, and it's stuff like the Bionic Woman TV show. It's that, that Geico Cavemen TV show that was, like, Nick Kroll's big break. Mm. Um Stuff that I've heard about, like the 4400, which was a lost knockoff. Every show, every show you can think about was affected from this, with the exception of like HBO content and SpongeBob. Other than that, if there was a show you were watching during this time, it went away for a while. It went to reruns. Yeah. Um, this almost canceled the finale of Scrubs. Which one? <laughs> yeah, exactly. The good, <laughs> the good one, the yeah. real one. Yeah. So that was, that was the big one. That was the last one. That's the one I remember and like being terribly concerned over the con the quality of future content. It ended the way it always ended with like after the longest strike from writers, the longest holdout studios finally went fine. I guess we'll give you a cut of the DVD sales. Please come right for Kimmel. <laughs> and they did. And we've lasted another 15-ish years. About the average. Before now, in this year, like just in the past month, a formal writer's strike has begun and has taken place. As of like this Tuesday, people are already saying like, okay, there is going to be a strike. And of course, what is this strike about, Andy? This strike is about a new technology that nobody could like foresee being a profitable venture when the last thing was written, when the last like bylaws and, and contract was written. Now is a hugely profitable thing that writers are not seeing a part of. I am referring, of course, to streaming content. Now, I want to reemphasize a point here that Andy mentioned earlier on. The contract with the WGA gets rewritten every three years. Writers have not just suddenly gone, well, they're streaming now. We want to go on strike because we want the residuals. No, they have been asking for these residuals in their contracts yeah. for, I think, the last 12 years, the last four rewrites. Well, and even you, you look back to 2008, and that is when Netflix is starting to really take off and take its first burgeoning steps. I think a lot of the writers who like got fired from their shows went on to start writing the first Netflix original TV series. Yeah. Um, and so there is a, a, a genuine like connection from the last one. And so like I, I've talked about all these things. You know, this one, um, all we know right now is that Saturday Night Live has said, okay, we're done. We're not doing any more episodes for the rest of the season until the strike is done. Um, we can foresee that late night television is going to go away mm -hmm. and any show that you like that is like still in 
um, production. I'm looking at The Last of Us Season 2. I'm looking at Euphoria Season 3. Um, I think Succession is ending, so that one's probably going to be spared. But, like, this is potentially going to have a profound impact on your listener, your favorite show over the next year or two. And streaming has been so fascinating because here's the thing. In previous versions of this, there were spaces for money to still come in. Yeah. On those reruns, when writers were trying to get money on home video, they had gotten their residuals on things like reruns. So when companies were showing reruns, the writers were still being able to be paid. Importantly, those writers who were still being able to be paid could be paying into the strike fund for the WGA. So even writers who were striking who didn't get those residuals were still able to pay their rent and feed their families. Sure. Streaming has been such a weird monster. Because here's the thing, we don't have reruns the way that we used to. Yeah. Viewership on reruns of actual syndicated TV are at their lowest because of streaming. And streaming doesn't just fuck over writers, you know? It fucks over actors. It fucks over directors. Exactly. And it used to be, like, the, the thing about syndication... And, and I think we've touched on this a little bit before, but if you don't know, syndication, when it, it was a big thing for a long time for TV shows to reach a certain number of episodes. I believe it was 48 episodes for half hour TV shows, um, which is maybe two or three seasons. Um, I don't remember what it was on hour longs, but the point was when you got a certain number of episodes, you could get syndication and syndication meant those residuals. It mm -hmm. meant continuously having money coming into you for everyone who was negotiated for that for a while. This is why actors talked about how you do movies for art, but you do TV for money. Yeah. The people, the people who were on Friends made a million dollars an episode of Friends, but then they also got residuals. The reason Seinfeld can afford a fucking garage full of Ferraris is not because of how successful Seinfeld was at the time, but it's how he's continued to make money off of the syndication. And for the littler people, for the non-Jerry Seinfelds, it was like the reason you can viably say that you want to pursue this career is because... Yes, it's a struggle, especially a struggle to break in, especially a struggle to make ground. But if you can get on that TV show, yeah, if you can get on 30 Rock or Scrubs or whatever, then you know you're going to be at least okay to and, get you to the next project. Yeah, and you might be in the writer's room for 30 Rock for three months out of the year. And you were trying to line up another writer's room job after that one wrapped. But the point was, you had that bridge in case that didn't come in. Or it took a while. Because you had the residuals on other episodes of things you've done for a while. Right. Now, with streaming, from the beginning, streaming has locked a lot of people out. And the problem is, now we don't have those residuals to fall back on in the same way for syndication. Yeah. For all, for all of that before, because people aren't watching TV as much. They're watching streaming, and streaming hasn't paid those from the beginning. And streaming has been has been corporately defined as technically different and distinct. Yeah. So this is – you have gone down four different strikes here, but this strike is different. So here's the thing. I would argue it's not actually. This is my, this is my hate. I've, I've talked about these, these things. I've laid down the history – Time and time and time again, 
the issue on the table is there is a new thing that we didn't realize was going to be an avenue for content. And because we didn't realize it, we didn't think to ask for a cut of it. And because we didn't explicitly think to ask for a cut of it, your corporate lawyers decided that we would not get a cut of it. And now this is a hugely profitable thing. Okay, let, uh, let, me, let me rephrase. I will apologize. You are correct. The origins of this strike yes. are exactly the same. Yes, that's all, that's all yeah. I mean. The origins of this strike are corporate buttfuckery. Yes. <laughs> on the part of the studios... And, and 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 the corporate structures that every time a new shift is made in the media market, they try and fuck over this particular group no. for their own profit. The origins of the strike are the same. The realities of the strike are different. Yes. Because again, the strike fund isn't being paid into in the same way because when those studios go over to reruns, it doesn't mean as much. If a streaming service just wants to cut off the streaming bits, people are still going to fucking keep watching reruns of The Office wherever they are. Yeah. But the residual structure on those is inherently different. Yeah, I, I, I will agree with that absolutely. The WGA in a formal statement has said the survival of writing as a profession is at stake in this negotiation. And for once, I don't. Not for once, but I don't take them lightly on that. I think there is validity to that statement for the reasons you're laying out and also thinking about how, like, you know what's the other frontier that isn't even actually streaming? YouTube. Internet content. Yeah. The thing that is pro that has proliferated and become its own a genre unto itself since 2008. Yeah. That there's pressure on the writers especially... Because separately from anything the studios do, except probably like Viacom or whoever owns YouTube at this point, um, we, the viewers, the people, can go, ah, shit, Last of Us 2 isn't going to happen because of this strike. I guess I'm going to watch a less pl Let's Play of Last of Us on YouTube now. There is another thing we can go and watch that's not reality TV, that's not even sports, that is a whole new thing. Yeah. And there's there's two specters looming over this. One is and, and and I might sound silly to you as I articulate the at least one of these. One of the specters is the realities of old media. Yeah. Radio is still around. Newspapers are still around. TV as in terrestrial TV and cable and satellite are going in that direction. Yeah. There, it, it'll take a while, but it is going in that direction where it captures, it, 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 it's at the point now where a hit TV show, it, a, a, an absolute success is if it gets 3 million viewers. The Super Bowl gets easily a, over 100 million. Like it, it and once, and, and again, that Dallas, that, 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 that Dallas um, Who Shot JR episode, that one was in the upper tens of millions. I don't think yeah. it quite reached 100 million. The MASH finale was the most watched scripted TV event, I think, in history. And that was like 120 million, I think. Three million is now a hit. That would have been considered an abject failure 20 years ago. Yeah. Streaming is now where the 
is where the bulk of the TV content is hitting. And you are right to point out YouTube as an alternative. So that is one reality hanging over this. They are negotiating not just for, let me get a piece of this new technology that's now a factor. No, they are negotiating for the literal future yeah. of this guild. To, to that point, the other thing, and I, I appreciate that they, for once, not for once, again, I keep saying that, I appreciate that the Writers Guild is looking ahead especially because the other thing they're saying is they want um, IP controls over artificially generated content. And that was my second point here. And again, this is where we might sound conspiracy theory-ish, but we talked about AI art recently. Yeah. And, and and there's the running joke of like, oh, I fed an AI machine a thousand hours of The Sopranos and here's the script. Okay, whatever. That's fine. But the point is, with the increasing sophistication of yeah. AI-generated art, we are now getting to the point where – we are fast approaching the point where you can feed – if you have an existing show – or you have a series of existing shows, you can feed those into an algorithm and it will shit you out a script that is at least workable bones mm -hmm. and a knowledgeable director, editor, producer, people who maybe aren't necessarily script writers, but who handle stories and who know their way around scripts can take those bones and fashion their content out of yeah. it. We are going to be approaching AI-generated TV, or at least AI-written TV, in the coming years. It's not that far off. I've seen estimates as soon as three years. I've seen most people saying it's pretty much inevitable within a decade. And I guarantee you, especially if this strike goes over 100 days, goes over three months, you're going to have somebody at Netflix who goes... Well, let's just try it. Let's just see what happens. Oh, we'll market it that way. Check out the first AI written TV show. Exactly. And the fact that it's going to be weird and clunky and kind of suck is going to be part of the quote unquote meta humor of it all. Yeah. And it's and it's and, and the thing is, we've seen this fucking script because we saw it with reality TV. Yeah. They said no scripts like that was some kind of selling point. No scripts, all reality, Yeah, which was a lie from the beginning. And it'll be a lie when they say that it's entirely AI generated. It's going to be edited by humans so that it is at least somewhat serviceable. But it's still going to fuck over actual the actual people who fucking create the media you love yeah so i'm coming to the end of this here we we have no way of knowing how this is going to play out other than our our admittedly dire but i think uh, well intentionedly accurate well intentionedly skeptical predictions um the writers are once again trying to just come up with a living wage to be able to create the content that you, I, and you, dear internet friend, love, and are kind of just, at the end of the day, turning to people like David Zaslav and Netflix co-CEO Ted Sarandos, people who are raking in record profits because they are the ones in charge of the streaming content services, and going... Can we have our share, please? Yeah. And to be clear, and we, we talked about this when we were talking about the HBO Discovery merger. David Zaslav cut a bunch of media, including what was probably going to be a really dope Batgirl movie that was almost done. Yeah. Specifically because he didn't want to pay on these small residuals that were already going to be attached to it. Yeah. It was a cost-saving measure 
because he knew that if it streamed, yes, it would make a profit, but we would also have to pay residuals on it. And the gamble he made was that the residuals would not be worth it. Now imagine when we start adding more people, more writers, more production people, more of the people who actually worked on it. Imagine what happens when we start adding them to that pie. Yeah. We might cut the pie up a little more small for everybody, or we might add on to them. Either way, it doesn't change the calculus for those people. They sit here and I, they go, this number of people will get paid for their work. And that is profit out of our pockets, so we're not going to do it. Yeah. We're, we are coming at the tail end of the COVID-19 quarantine. I refuse to say the pandemic's over because it's fucking not. But we are coming to the end of the period in which content already had to shut down. Movie theaters already had to, like, do a shutdown. Yeah. This is, for so many reasons, potentially the worst writer's strike with the, far, with the worst consequences we have ever seen. And it is about stuff that we love. It, it, at the end of the day, like... Maybe this won't lead to the heat death of the planet, but it might lead to the final bullet in the head for movie theaters or non-AI generated content. Or content that just... We said at the beginning of this in our douchebag buffer, we were at an apex point for horror. Yeah, yeah. Um, we're, people have talked about the last 10, 15 years being the golden age of television an era that started with the Sopranos and now people are calling things like the last of us and succession, some of the greatest television that's ever been made. You could argue we're still in that era. Maybe. Yeah. Um, but you don't get that without the writers. Yeah. You don't have golden eras of art without writers. You have schlock like goddamn reality television. Yeah. You have, to speak, to speak to the old white men in charge, you have billions of dollars of revenue lost, which, depending on, no matter how you're looking at it, as a bad, is a bad thing. Yeah. Um, so I will continue to watch this issue with growing interest and concern. I encourage you to do the same, dear listeners. But you know what else I encourage you to do? Send us questions. <laughs> Send us prognostications. Uh, every other episode of Cult Fiction, which uh, as of recording the next episode, we will be doing our thing where we take your and the Internet's relationship questions and we provide our perfectly unqualified advice. You can send those questions to lovehaterelationshippodcast at gmail.com. We promise we'll read them. You can also follow us on Twitter still, I guess, at yeah. LHRpod. That's L-H-R-P-O-D. DM us your questions there. Send questions you find on the internet or from your friends or family or loved ones or strangers on the street. And uh, you can also look up there for us to continue tweeting about various topics that we've already talked about in the past i'm sure at some point i'll have an opinion on the new john mulaney special <laughs> oh god right uh i kind of want to watch it um yeah yeah absolutely you can follow me andy boel at jovocop2113 on twitter you can also follow my other account where i paint miniatures that's andy's underscore minis uh, I'm recently having donated some stuff I painted to a local game shop, so oh, I'm shit. very excited for that. 
And you can find my other podcast, Cult Fiction, that I mentioned earlier, that I do with the incomparable Stephanie Johnson, where we watch old cult movies that may or may not have been interested by various writer strikes. Yeah. I should have mentioned before you said that that you can uh, find our podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, YouTube, or even TuneIn Radio. Hey, Mom. Uh, you can follow me on uh, Twitter, Instagram, uh, TikTok, Chess.com, and LieChess. Uh, of those five, I'm really only on Instagram and Chess.com, although I'll poke into LieChess once in a while. But whatever. Do, 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 do what you will. Um, of those handles, you are by far on LieChess the most. So Chess.com the most. You are by far on Chess.com the most. So it, hit Alex up on Chess.com. That's right. I'm at A underscore X underscore R-U-I-Z. Thanks for listening, y'all. As ever, please tell your enemies. <laughs>